0: Welcome to Ghostwriters Anonymous, an inspirational and interactive podcast where we create worlds through words and writing. I'm Kelsey, and today I'd like to know if you were a number, what number would you be? I would be the number eight. So today, I would like to share with you my villain. This is going to be a drafted scene from this book that I'm trying to write, and this character has lived in my head for a while. Very early on, on some of our first episodes, I had shared a tiny little short story about this secret in the desert dunes, and the secret that the desert held was a name, and that name was Abu Gam. Well, Abu Gam is going to be my villain in this book. I always knew I wanted to put this character somewhere, I just didn't know where and I didn't know what sort of character he would be. Originally, I imagined him to be a hero, but he just really wanted to be a villain. And I remember thinking that's such a strange concept, that a character is telling you who they want to be and how they want to be, they sort of live in you in a way. And The more I write, the more I learn about them, and I actually enjoy learning about them. It's so fun. It's like I'm getting to know them. This scene is kind of heartbreaking to me because because it's the first scene so far that we meet him and it's also the first scene that he dies. (laughs) I don't know if it's just the scene itself or the layers behind the scene that will eventually come to light, but every time I read it, I get a little misty-eyed and it's because I'm kind of grieving for the loss of Abu Gham. And I think I'm grieving him because I felt like I barely got to know him and then he's already cast away and when he's cast away, he's taking on almost a new identity. I'll explain all that in a minute, I hope. So let me just read it, and then maybe I can talk a little bit more about it. So we're going to meet, in this excerpt, Abugam Velik, who I've discussed from the very first, who is the hero in the story, and then we also meet a merchant ship captain, Vector Scott. I'm not so sure about him right now, but I think he's kind of a grey character, kind of a good guy, bad guy. More on him later, on a later episode. So, Velik has boarded a merchant ship as a passenger. And the merchant ship doesn't typically take on passengers, but the captain is not going to turn down money, so he accepts Velik's coin. I haven't quite decided where Velik is going. I sort of have an idea that he's going to go to this prayer temple, but I really don't know. I haven't even written that scene yet, but this scene was kind of burning inside of me. You might know from my Haunted Sea Shanty episode that I love nautical themes and nautical scenes and this is playing a lot into that and, as a matter of fact, the Haunted Sea Shanty episode, which was an in-house short story competition for my work, it really Really helped me flesh out this scene, so you might notice some parallels between the two of them. It was a few hours before dawn, and Valik was still awake. The ship creaked and groaned around him. It had been a beautiful, clear night. He'd spent most of it marveling at the stars and searching the heavens for familiar constellations. For the unfamiliar ones, he spun his own tales and possibilities for how they came to be honored paintings in Knight's Gallery. By now, thick fog was starting to roll in at intervals. There was a drowsy stillness to the air. It made Velik uneasy. He knew how dangerous fickle weather could be. To assuage his whisper of worry, Velik fished a coin from his belt pouch. Then, pausing for reverence, he flicked it into the deep blue and purple below, payment for safe passage. Maritime wishes were rumored to only be up for consideration when land was nowhere in sight. Thanks to the fog, it comfortably fit within those parameters. Maybe wishes were fool's entertainment, for scarcely had the coin left Velik's fingers when a plunk plunk rang out from across the ship. Velik whirled from his meditations to see two metal hooks bite into the starboard railing. A voice from the mizzenmast plummeted to the deck. Pirates! Plunk plunk. Two more bitten to the railing as the ship hands stirred in alarm. Velik drew his hatchet and raced to the threat, hacking at ropes that bridged the grappling hooks to whatever vessel lay beyond the fog. Plunk, 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 plunk. Velik couldn't get ahead of them. Members of the overnight skeleton crew rushed to aid him while the ship roused to action. One of the men shot arrows blindly into the fog. There were no indicators how successful their trajectory had been. With pandemonium erupting on the starboard side, no one took immediate notice of the pirates scaling the port side with their boarding axes. The dinghy that transported them was already disappearing into the fog as the pirates vaulted over the port railing. Attack on the port side, cried the voice from above. Valek pivoted sharply. The port side? He had just been there. The fog had collected so thickly it was ideal for concealment, but not practical for combat. One pirate, their captain from the looks of him, called to order, Surrender your cargo and you'll leave here with your lives. He was well-groomed for raiding a ship, raven hair slicked back with pomade, dusky complexion, a dark tunic that reflected deep maroon when the lanterns caught it, complete with a black plum overcoat that sported midnight velvet lapels. The ensemble tapered into relaxed black breeches and boots. It off-balanced his fellow pirates, whose hair was either shorn or masked by a kerchief. Their tunics and breeches were sun-faded and looked like they'd been cut from old sailcloth. Maybe they weren't veteran boarders. Their captain's attire was far too pretentious for getting his hands dirty. A brazen ship hand addressed the pretentious pirate from across the deck. "'You threaten our lives and our livelihood. What's the difference?' The man's words rallied a chorus of A's from the merchant ship as their captain swam forward, paddling through his crew's sea of bodies. His clothing was thrown together in haste, but not without armament. He stood fearless before the brigand. His chest was proud and his stance was sturdy. I'm Vector Scott, captain of this vessel. I apologize, but we were not expecting company at so early an hour. Who, may I ask, gives us the pleasure? A smile cracked the pirate captain's face. "'I am Abu Gam, but do not fret over arrangements. "'We won't be staying for breakfast. "'I hear your terms, but I'm willing to negotiate a trade.' "'The pirate captain laughed melodiously. "'Trade? We are not a merchant ship. "'We have no items to barter. "'We didn't capture your ship to pay wholesale price.' "'This garnered a rumbling chuckle from the pirates. "'My terms remain. "'Either you surrender your goods or you surrender your lives.' If I surrender my ship's cargo, then my crew is not to be harmed. Was that not my proposal from the first? I know the hour is early, but this repetition is making me weary. Abu Gham's words carried across the ship with ego-laden showmanship. Captain Vector Scott didn't fall to his mockery. Help yourselves to the cargo, but my crew and I will not be assisting you. Are you enjoying our company so much that you wish us to linger? Abu Gam stepped wide like a circling predator. Vector tracked his movements like the swiveling head of a cat laying low in the grass. Round up the cargo, Abu Gam commanded. The pirate crew swarmed the ship like an army of ants. Crates were pried open to verify their contents. More grappling hooks sailed through the fog to gain purchase. The pirate's vessel was slowly reeled into view, docking alongside the merchant ship with an orderly assembly line of transferred goods to follow. Veteran pirates, to be sure. The merchant ship hands eyed one another as often as they eyed the pirates, employing themselves with their month's wages. Velik felt an electricity to the air from mines at work. Quiet plotting and whole conversations were traded in the shifting of a gaze. Velik watched and waited. The pirates didn't seem to notice the silent formulating. They were swift in their labor, get in, get out. The merchant crew were still as statues, frozen where they stood. Velik tried to translate their covert cues, but he was at a loss. The only guidance he had was the grating tension of a trap waiting to be sprung. Vector Scott, he noticed, wasn't watching the eyes of his crew, but it was he who made the first move. When a foursome of pirates brushed past him, burdened with a large crate of merchandise, Vector Scott pivoted the toe of his boot. The rear-left pirates stumbled and off-balanced the load. The merchant captain danced out of their way, but when the crate crashed to the ground and the rear men's bodies were blooming with blood, the merchant crew erupted into action. Velik raced to the pirate captain and tackled him to the planks before he could fully draw his scimitar. They rolled and wrestled while arrows whizzed above them and swords clanged around them. In all cases, grappling is gritty. You're in close quarters, smelling the sweat and adrenaline of your opponent. Abu Abugam was the exception to this rule. He smelled of black powder and licorice. It was poignantly distinct and consistently off base from what Velik understood to be a pirate. For all his finery, Abu Gam grappled with competency. He broke from Velik and created space to unsheath his weapon. If the two weren't in a race to kill one another, Velik would be curious to know what this man's life was like, outside of piracy. Velik didn't linger on the thought. To lose focus would be his life. He'd never experienced such high stakes as an immortal. On the contrary to being fearful of the fragility of life, he was thrilled by it. Valik was no swordsman, but he held his hatchet at the ready, making a mental checklist of his hidden daggers. The battle raged on around them while they circled one another like a viper's coils, chests heaving to reload their bodies with oxygen. Velik swung his hatchet and ducked low for a sweep. Abu Gam caught the movement, sidestepping with a seamless parry. He dodged an arrow and advanced on Velik. Velik fainted left and swung right. The pirate captain flowed with the movement a competent grappler and dueler then, Velik had underestimated his opponent. The element of surprise would be hard won. He engaged again and was pushed back. The pirate captain was enjoying this, eyes dancing, teeth flashing. Velik's hatchet was a clumsy match, but he was making do. It was going to take more than just his blades. Velik flung his hatchet at Abu Gam and lunged forward as the pirate captain evaded the soaring threat. Now was his chance. Velik knocked Abu Gam's scimitar out wide and pinned the pirate captain to the mainmast with his forearms. Then, before Abu Gham could repost, Velik crushed his lips onto his opponent's mouth. He didn't know he had an audience until jeers rose up around them. While Abu Gham sputtered in shock, Velik slipped a dagger between his ribs and hauled him overboard. The pirate captain crashed beneath the waves in a tumult of vertigo. He clutched at his chest and involuntarily inhaled the briny water. He kicked and thrashed, choking on another surge of water. Just as the sun broke over the horizon, darkness closed in on him, pulling him under. He flung out his hands, hoping to break the surface. Blood spilled from his heart and the water lapped up his life force like a hungry sea dog. His body slowed to listlessness. Then, a bony hand reached out from the darkness. And then there's a break. When Abu Gham drew breath, the air was light in his lungs. He curled his fingers around the familiar texture of sand. He didn't feel his eyes open, but rather his surroundings slowly faded into view. The night sky exploded with stars around him. He hadn't realized there was no sound until the nostalgic soundscape of a night desert leaked into his ears. A breeze drifted past, kicking sand across his face. Familiar smells cascaded into his nostrils. He shielded his eyes from another gust of wind-blown sand and discovered his body was sopping wet, despite him feeling as dry as the desert breeze. He sat up, revolving his gaze to a desolate landscape of shifting sand dunes that met with nothing but the night sky. He thought he saw something erect in the distance, not a person, it was stationary. A narrow building? He stood up with ease, feeling as light and fluid as mist over the water. So light, in fact, that he patted himself down to confirm that he was still there, a solid form. When he stepped toward the structure, he found that he was quite rapidly standing immediately before it. It was as if they both rushed to meet one another in the blink of an eye. The lack of space and time continuity knocked him off balance, causing him to sway, like he was standing on a dinghy in undulating waters for the first time. The narrow building, he discovered, wasn't a building at all. It was a simple door fitted snug within its frame. Nothing extended beyond it but the desert and the sky. Curiously, he stepped behind it. Nothing. He reached for the knob and tested it. It turned effortlessly. He pushed it open to reveal the desert and the night sky, precisely as one would expect. He stepped through to study the frame and was awash in wonder to find himself in a sitting room. More incredibly, a cloaked skeleton was addressing him by name. Abugam Galu, welcome. Much like the door, the voice rushed up to meet him. The acoustics didn't match the proximity. Then again, Abu Gam had never been greeted by a skeleton before. The skeleton was comfortably seated in an upholstered charcoal-gray wing-backed chair. A fire crackled beside it. Him? Casting a homely orange glow to the intimate space. Flanking the skeleton stood the tallest woman Abu Gham had ever seen. Her frame feathered into the shadows, giving her eyes the eerie illusion of levitation, if not for the warm outline from the fire, vaguely anchoring them to a face. Abu Abugam had the calm acceptance of his surroundings as one would within a dream, despite them having no foundation for what he understood to be reality. He hadn't recognized he neglected to answer the skeleton until it, he, spoke again. Please, peruse at your leisure. The skeleton waved a casual hand. If one suits your needs, we will make the arrangements. Abu Abugam was dumbfounded. What need had he for a heart? Without thinking, he raised a hand to his breast. The familiar metronome of his life was still. Then, for the first time, he noted the fluttering murmur of a vast collection of hearts all around him, hearts that only made sense in a dream. Turning to take them all in, he loosed his thoughts. Why can't I have the heart beneath my ribs? You don't have a heart, answered the skeleton. Abugam frowned. Had he just been insulted by a skeleton? As if reading his mind, the giant woman stepped forward, "'What my husband means to say, Mr. Galu, is you are dead. "'Your heart is no longer with you. "'If you wish to feel life quicken through your veins again, "'we offer hearts for lease.' "'Abugam realized that his chest didn't rise and fall with breath. "'Where is my heart?' he asked clumsily. "'Gone,' said the giant, simply. "'Abugam pulled the plunged neckline of his tunic to the side. "'He saw no incision. "'How do I get it back?' "'You don't.' "'The giant guided him to the wall of hearts.' "'But you can have a refurbished one.' Abu Abugam was still stumbling through his thoughts. "'What if I don't want a refurbished one?' "'Then you are a wandering spirit to whatever awaits you outside that door.' She pointed to the door from the desert. It was closed, though Abu Abugam didn't recall shutting it. It appeared quite ordinary, a simple door attached to the wall. "'I am to wander the desert like a cloud of hot steam?' "'If that's the world you've divined for yourself, yes,' replied the giant." Abu Abugam considered the desert beyond the door. That couldn't be all there was to it. Perhaps the desert gave way to a different landscape after a time. Still, questions tugged at him. What's the price for a heart? We accept coin, she answered patiently. Abu Abugam absently patted himself down. I have no coin, he confessed. He halted when he felt something solid. He withdrew a single coin from his pocket, tossed from the ship they boarded. Rage rushed over him like a wave as memories of the sea skirmish flitted past. The man he fought on the deck had kissed him. In front of his crew, men who respected him. He had never known such humiliation. The woman intruded on his thoughts. "'Oh, a wishing coin,' she said knowingly. "'I think you'll find its worth can be stretched quite far.' Abu Gam bit down on his anger. "'I apologize for my ignorance, but who are you?' I'm Mrs. Death, and this is my husband. She indicated the skeleton seated by the fire. Abu Abugam stared at Death anew. He found it silly now that he had asked. Of course he was dead. She had already said that, hadn't she? Were his sins so great that he had to be released from the world in such humiliation? It was not an honorable death or an honorable memory. If you'd like to test the worth of your coin, my husband can assist you, continued Mrs. Death. While Abu Abugam let his anger boil over him in seething silence, he noticed death had a narrow desk in front of him, topped with a scale. Where had that come from? Abugam heaved his chest to consolidate his rage and felt no rush of air flood into his body. He considered the coin. It didn't look or feel special. Tell me more about these hearts and what it is you do, bit out Abugam. And the scene ends there. I think his afterlife is a good follow-up to episode 97, The Watchmen and Swamp Thing, because we have these two very similar worlds with very different circumstances. With The Watchmen and Swamp Thing, that is a dream world that Dahlia more or less becomes anchored into later in the novel. And Abugam's afterlife has that same kind of whimsical feeling. And so the idea behind that is the story that I was told about about the doorway in the desert. It had something to do with one man was in the desert and when he opened a door, he walked into his afterlife on the other side. Another man, when he opened the door, he saw nothing because he didn't believe in anything. And so his afterlife was exactly that. This is playing off of that idea. Abu history isn't exactly ironed out, but he definitely has roots in a desert biome. I think that's why he goes there. It's kind of a peaceful place for him, a peaceful memory. I think it's important to love your villain, and I love Abu And I think it's because I loved him before he was a villain in that short story that I wrote. I think that short story plays into the innocence of Abugam and for whatever reason he has turned into this pirate. He has this good thread in him. He doesn't want to kill people but he's going to kill people and has killed people. I actually had to go back and rewrite a little bit of this scene because I needed to put in there how he had this licorice and black powder smell. That smell is going to later haunt Velik. It's going to kind of be the ghost of Abu Abugam still hanging around and I want it to be these mental cues for Velic. This is a very distinct smell and I've smelled it before. And that kind of funnels from the idea of when people talk about ghosts and how sometimes their household will have this cherry cigar smell or something like that where this very real sense is at the forefront of this presence And so that's what I'm wanting for Abu Gham. His presence is not quite depicted or deciphered, but something from his past life has remained. And what I'm trying to do is weave in these anchors. That smell is what's anchoring him to the real world, just as later on we're going to learn that Dahlia's thread of life is rooted to her dream world. Essentially, what happened in the Watchmen in the Swamp thing, this Dream Weaver summoned this dream out of Dahlia and put it on this tapestry, and what she's using as her thread is the fiber of Dahlia's being, her life force, her life thread. And so, since that has been pulled from her, later in the book, Dahlia's going to die. And so, that is going to kind of be this thread for Valic to follow to find Dahlia, much like... Theseus and the Minotaur, which was one of my favorite stories. I'm hoping all this makes sense. Some of this I've already written and some I haven't yet. So it just feels like this twisting of ideas that I haven't stretched out yet. But anyway, what really gets me in this excerpt that I shared today is when death reaches out of the darkness. It actually reminds me of that song, Reach Out of the Darkness by Friend and Lover, which I'm not sure I intended that, but later on I thought about it. I think that song is very fitting for how I view Mr. and Mrs. Death? This is mostly a note for myself that I've placed in the book, but I might turn it into a scene. Right now, I've just titled it Mrs. Death's Thoughts on Her Husband. Do you think my husband is unkind? That his touch isn't gentle and meant to soothe? Why would a woman fall in love with a monster, a villain? When he reaches for you, it is a bliss only his wife could understand. And so there seems to be this unintentional theme of monsters and love and loving a monster, which is so Beauty and the Beast. And I don't know if that's just a very easy theme to discover in something or if that's just a theme that I seem to want to write, but it's there. And it's really interesting I've learned how masterful books are. I feel like you don't really know what you're doing as you're writing. Or at least I don't. Then I'm seeing these things organically connect. And then I'm seeing things that, oh, maybe I can connect this later on. And that's kind of the fun in it. But when Abu Gham wakes up in this desert world, in this in-between, this limbo, this afterlife, whatever you want it to be... It reminds me of the very beginning of the song Pure Imagination from Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory with Gene Wilder. This song is very off-kilter. It seems playful, but also not quite right. And that's exactly how I feel this world is. He's at peace in this place, but it's just not right. And so he's kind of discovering it slowly. His senses are slowly coming to him. And I really like how we go from almost a sensory overload scene, he's in the middle of battle, to absolute silence, and then a slow quickening So the very first episode that I shared sections of my draft was Death and the Mises," and in that, Velik is in the same heart chamber as Abu Gham is, but they have very different experiences there. When Velik comes, he is an immortal trying to buy his way into a mortal life, and Death really doesn't acknowledge him. He doesn't greet him by name. He doesn't really pay attention to him until they're doing the business transaction. But here, Abu Gam is greeted by death by name. And that just goes back to in that scene with Velik, Mrs. Death explains, you want to be immortal. I hope you know what you're doing. I hope you've thought this through. This isn't something that anyone has ever done. It's just something people talk about doing. It's a flight of fancy. My husband doesn't know you because you're an immortal but he will come to know you as he knows every mortal life." and he knows mortal life because he's the one who's reaching his hand out to take you to the other side. He's your friend, more or less. I really wanted to put across here that death is not the villain. That song, Reach Out of the Darkness, it's a song about people getting together and having a good time. I think it's so groovy now that people are finally getting together. Think it's wonderful how. It's supposed to be this lighthearted thing. I think he and his wife compliment one another. how they interact with people. Helpful, not damning. So as I was reading this just now for this recording, I was getting these flash images of the villain in Zorro, how he's wearing at the very first scene. I remember it as a velvety overcoat or dress coat. That's kind of what I envision Abu Gam wearing. It's been probably like a week since I've gone back to this and worked on it. I'm always so scared that I'm never going to get back to it. And so that's why I do these episodes to keep up with it. If you guys are writing something or you want to share thought on an episode, please email us at gwritersanon at gmail.com. Our book club episodes are in the works. I just have to get them edited and then we'll release them. I'll catch you guys next week. Thank you for listening.